Good evening, all. Welcome to our humble abode. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, starting at chapter 20. As we've been going through the book of Acts, you know, we read chapters and we don't realize that years have gone by. You know, you can go from one chapter to the next chapter and it's been six years. And as we're continuing with Paul, there's this change that takes place with Paul. We see this guy who still causes riots wherever he goes, but we start seeing him a little wiser. We start seeing him not seeking a fight, so to speak, but being careful to avoid things and not get beat up. He probably, you know, once you get beat up, you don't want to get beat up again. It's one of those things. You know, you, you get in a fight with someone bigger than you, you avoid that next time around. You find someone smaller than you. You, you work it out so I don't get hurt because, man, getting hurt's just no fun. And we see Paul not afraid to stir things up, but we see him wiser, a little calmer, and we actually see a lot more heart come out of him in this chapter. And over the years, what a great thing it is to just see this monument of a man in the church develop and grow. And what's great about that is, as Paul had to grow, so do we. Our lives don't stop growing in our relationship with God. There's never a time where we say, well, there, I've read the Bible, I've got it down. You know, I, I don't need to grow anymore, I've got it together. We always need to grow. And we see that taking place throughout Paul's life, and we see it taking place here again in chapter 20. Let's read verses 1 through 6. When the uproar had ended, this is the uproar, the, the riot that had just ended in Ephesus, where they were shouting out toward the goddess Diana, and they did that for a few hours, and finally they subsided. After the uproar ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months because the Jews made a point against him, a plot against him, excuse me, just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia, and he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyphrus, from Berea, Aristocris, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus, and Trophimesius, or something like that, from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So we see now that Paul is leaving, and when it says that he stayed for three months, that's in Corinth. We see that he stayed in Corinth actually for three months, and it's that time that he actually wrote the book of Romans. Corinth was a very polluted city as far as morally 
It was very corrupt, full of just lewd living. You know, it it's amazing, and that's why his book to the Romans talks about the depravity of man in so many ways. You know, I always hear, well, we're living in such evil times. You know, things are, are so bad, and boy, things are just, you know, they've never been this bad before, and really, they have. And all over the world, they are. You know, we talk about our little Western, you know, society as if it's the only thing that's ever existed. But things were really bad in Corinth, a lot worse than we experience today. And there are things happening in the world today that would make us shudder. Happening all over the world in different places. Corruption is nothing new. And what's great is the heart of the gospel is found even in the worst of places. Corrie ten Boom, when she was in a, a Nazi concentration camp, talk about how bad it gets where people are being experimented on and treated as animals. She said, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. What a great reminder for us that God is wherever that pit might be. God can be found a stream of light in the darkest corners. And God is there. And as Paul is leaving, I love it says in verse 1 that he, after encouraging them, he didn't just say, I'm out of here, he encouraged them. And we're going to see this starts to become part of his character. He, he, if he's leaving, he's going to encourage before he leaves. And so as he goes and he leaves them, he encourages them, he goes and stays in Corinth for a while, and it says that he was accompanied by these people here. What's happening here in this accompaniment, and we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send with your gifts to Jerusalem. What's happening here are there are a number of churches that have been collecting money for the church in Jerusalem that was suffering through famine. And this list of people that we see here are the people that are accompanying Paul to Jerusalem to bring money to the church that is there because they're in need. What's great about this is there are a number of people involved, which shows there's accountability, that it's not just give everything to Paul, but they're also representing the different churches to show the church in Jerusalem, we're thinking about you. We're caring about you. And that's a great thing that connects us as brothers. We have family all over the world, really. It's amazing how much help is being given from Christians all over the world to other Christians in other areas. And, and it's, what's really interesting is I've met Christians from Europe who have come to the United States as missionaries. And you think, why are you coming here, you know? Well, because we need help too in different areas. But we send help out to different areas. We're sending help out into Mexico. We are contributing in that area where we go. And on certain trips, we're able to actually go ourselves. In October, we're going to be able to go for that five-day period down to Vizcaino for those who would want to go. In a real sense, continuing what's happening here where people go down and say, hey, we're with you. 
What I loved about the pastors' conference in Mexico is here you've got churches all over this region in central Baja and su southern Baja. I mean, even in northern Baja, we had churches all over. I don't know how many churches were represented there. And here are other churches from California, some from Oregon, that came down to say, we're here to help you. We know you guys are in need. We know it's difficult for you. We're helping. We care. We're here. We're helping. And that's what's taking place here. These people that are mentioned that are traveling with Paul, they're carrying money to, to the church in Jerusalem to help care for that church and to minister to the needs that are there as they were carrying these things to help out. And they were a representation of, hey, we're one body. We're caring for you guys. And we also see that's taking place in this is there's a change here as we see Luke is back in the picture because it says these men in verse 5 went ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi. So now Luke is back in the picture. We see that he's considering himself one among these groups of people here. goes on, let's go on and read verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. And so in light of this scripture, we're going to fulfill this and we'll be going on till midnight. Then were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus. His name means comfort, um, which is interesting. Uh, Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. He was dead asleep now. Um, Paul, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. This is an interesting story, kind of tragic, but has a good ending and kind of humorous at the same time. As Paul's talking to them, first of all, where it says that Paul spoke, the word there spoke is dialegame. It means he conversed with them. So it wasn't just like what's happening here where I'm just kind of talking, they were dialoguing. In other words, Paul would talk to them and they would talk back. Paul would ask them a question. So have you guys heard about this? Well, what, what's going on here? Have you heard about the Holy Spirit? What are your thoughts? There was questions being asked. There was answers. And so it wasn't just Paul talking and talking and talking. But this conversation did go on and on and on. And it mentions that there were a lot of lamps there. Now, when they had lamps, they weren't electric lamps. They were fueled with kerosene or some kind of oil, perhaps. I don't think they had kerosene, but they had some kind of oil. But there would be fumes and there would be heat. And this guy was by the window, maybe to catch some fresh air, maybe because the place was packed. But no doubt the fumes were getting to him as well as just overcome with sleep. And so as it's going on, he falls asleep. You know, there is one way that I have found that will keep you from falling asleep during a study. 
you guys all want to know what it is it's be the one speaking <laughs> I have never fallen asleep when I'm talking now the other best way or next best thing is to plan on speaking what you hear in other words if you knew tomorrow you were going to be saying some of the things that I'm saying today, it would help you to be more aware of what's being, it's kind of like a test. Uh, if, I, if I know there's a test tomorrow, well, I'm going to pay more attention because I'm counting on this. And so if you think about, well, I'm going to say some of the things that I've heard being said, I'm going to share some of the things that kind of helps you stay in contact. But really, I think we've all been to that place where we've nodded off. I know many of you have, I can attest. I've seen it happen. I can remember one study, it was a retreat, and it, it was like a family retreat up at a cabin, it was a small place, and everyone fell asleep. Everyone, except for one person, besides the pastor who was speaking. And, and it was comical to say the least and I remember I at least fell asleep behind a couch so he couldn't see me um, but everyone nodded off and, and anyway we see that happens here this young man falls three stories down uh, you can imagine oh my gosh this is not the way we want things to happen Paul runs, runs down and much like Elijah did where he laid upon the the widow's son who was found dead we see kind of a similar thing happening here with Paul where he, he lays on him and it's not that he just saw that he was breathing and said he was alive. Luke, remember, is now writing this. Luke was a physician. Luke said he was dead. It even says later on, it says, you know, that he is, they were greatly comforted because he wasn't dead. He's alive. He went upstairs again. Uh, he ate bread with them. The guy was dead and he came back to life. It's a miracle. And that's just a little part of this little story that takes place. Can't guarantee it's going to happen to you tonight if you were to fall down and die. Uh, so don't take it as license to fall asleep. But what we do see is a miraculous thing takes place. Now, what started this and why Paul was going on so long is because he intended to leave the next day. And so he kept on talking. In other words... I'm not going to be here to talk with you guys tomorrow. There's a lot of things that are really important that I want to say. And so I'm going to, I'm going to say them. When you have that last opportunity to talk, it makes it more important. Remember, they didn't have cell phones. They couldn't send text messages. Hey, you know, what do you think about this? This is it. If I'm going to talk to Paul, it's now. This is the time that I have to talk with him. When Karina and I were visiting with our son Samuel that last night, it's like, oh, we're going to leave him. I'm not going to see him for how many months? You know, and there's this like, I don't want to leave, but I've got to leave. You're just, you're there and it's like, well, we've got to go. And that saying goodbye is hard. You know, you pray, you hug him and, and you just don't want to leave because it's not going to, we're not going to be able to see him for a period of time. I talked to him a few times on the phone afterwards, but it's different. At this time, they can't, when he's gone, he's gone. And so he stayed there because it was important. He had something to share with them. And the story of this guy who, who falls asleep, it, it just shows the reality. You know, 
I've got two ideas. I'd like to write two books. One would be perspective and just how we don't keep God in our perspective as, as much as we want. And the other one would be stories that aren't told. Because what's great about the Bible is it tells the truth. It tells all the stories that are real, that talks about all the faults, like this poor guy, Eutychus, whose name happens to be... They didn't just say there was a young kid. It's Eutychus. Yeah, it's him. He fell asleep and fell out of the window. You know, how many of us, if that happened to us, would want that written down and shared? I mean, that happens. All the, the things and the important things in our lives are things that we usually don't want to share, but you know what? Those are usually the important things that would need to be shared. And we see that's one of the great things about the scripture is it tells the truth. It doesn't tell us what we want to hear. It tells us the truth. It tells us about all the faults, whether it's with Peter, whether it's with David, whether it's with whoever. It just tells the truth about them. But then we come to our society and we like to butter things up and make them look all nice and clean and fresh and not have any of the faults and errors but the truth that's underneath that is we're really still the same as what was happening here. And all those things that happen here, yeah, people still fall asleep in church. You know, people still nod off, but fortunately we have rails so that they don't go out the third story window. But anyway, interesting story that takes place here as this happens. Another thing that's, I don't know how important it is, it's important that we recognize, as it says, on the first day, verse 7, which is Sunday. It meant they were meeting on Sunday. Now, some people, this is a big deal. You might have some people saying, well, no, you're not supposed to meet on Sunday. You're supposed to meet on Saturday, Seventh-day Adventist. There's even a group of uh, followers now who say that if you don't meet on Saturday, you're not fulfilling the Sabbath. And Sunday, after all, is worship of the sun god, S-U-N, not S-O-N. Which you can reply, well, Saturday is the worship of Saturn, the goddess, you know, Saturn. So which god do you want to worship, the sun god or Saturn? It, you can make, it, that doesn't matter. They met on Sunday. We see this takes place, you know, from Luke 24 and in John uh, 20 that Jesus rose and it was the first day of the week. We also have in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, the idea of a Sabbath was a shadow of things to come. It was a picture, if you would. Romans 14.5 also says, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul leaves this freedom for you to choose to be convinced in your own mind and don't put someone down because they meet on a Saturday instead of a Sunday or vice versa. It, it doesn't matter. Let it go. Don't make it an issue. And so we see that they met on the first day, which is Sunday. We meet on Sundays. What if we had to meet on Saturdays? Would that be okay? Yeah, it's okay. God, it's okay. That was a shadow. The Sabbath was a shadow of rest. The rest was the completed work of Christ, Hebrews tells us. And so it's not like the day is special. It was pointing to Jesus. 
but it was just a picture until we had the truth and then we had Jesus and it was fulfilled. You know, it was great to see my son and, and we have pictures of him. Kareem carries this keychain that has a picture of him on there with his uniform. You know, what if we went there and we saw Samuel and she's like, oh, look at my picture of my son. And he goes, hi, mom, I'm here. And that's how he talks to you. Hi, mom, I'm here. He's kind of monotone. Oh, hi, son. Don't, excuse me, I'm looking at your picture right now. No, our son's there. Forget the picture. You're here. But that's what some people want to do. They make the day important. No, the day's not important. It was Jesus that was important. That's what we want to be looking at. And so don't let anyone judge you if they say, well, what about, you know, Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 2, don't let anyone judge you about the day or Sabbath. So keep that in mind as people would try and throw that trip on you. It's not too popular. There's a couple of people that I know that that's an issue with, though, or a couple of groups of people. Um, verse 13. Now, verse 13, this changes because what we're actually getting, well, let's read through verse 13 um, through 16 first, because then we're, we're leading up to something here. Verse 13 says, We went on, there's the we again, ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos. I like that name. And on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now, we can tell Luke is writing this because Luke gets into detail. He's one of those guys who just got to tell you everywhere. You know, I mean, there's some places like it skips and we all of a sudden are in a different province, what happened? But Luke tells us how we got there, when we got there, what Paul did to get there. He's just a stickler for the detail. He says that they took a, a ship for a while, but Paul hoofed it by foot for a while, and it was actually like 20 miles that Paul took. Why? I don't know. If maybe he was seasick. Maybe he just wanted time alone. We don't know. But Luke gives us all the details. You never know a person who's into the details. My wife is one of those people. When I talk to the phone on the phone with one of my kids, I'll be saying, "Yeah, uh huh, okay," and I'll hang up. And she goes, "Okay, what they say? I want to know everything." And so cute. She wants to know everything. Well, what did they say? She asked me questions. Well, did you say this? I didn't ask that. Why didn't you ask that? I don't know. I didn't think that. Well, what about this? I don't know. They didn't mention it. You know, it's like I wasn't. She wants to know all the details. Well, Luke is giving us the details. He's giving us all the details, and then it says Paul didn't want to go in to this one region of Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province. And remember, we saw that Paul spent three years in Ephesus pastoring there. You can't just go there and pass through. If he went to Ephesus, he would be there for a long time because he had a lot of friends there. There was acquaintances there. There were people that he was close to and it's hard to go there when you're close to a lot of people. 
that you want to visit, you want to talk, it would have taken time. And so he, he couldn't just cruise through that place, especially again, there's no cell phones, there's no way to communicate. If you go there, you're gonna, it's going to be a big deal. And so he, he wants to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so he goes through, takes some of this place by foot. Again, we see Luke's into the details here, going through all these things. And now in verse 17, what we have here is actually a pastor's conference, which is pretty amazing. This is like the best pastor's conference you can go to. You know, who's speaking at this pastor's conference? Oh, it's going to be, you know... Chuck Smith and it's going to be, you know, John Corson and it's going to be, you know, whoever. Well, who's going to speak at this one? It's going to be Paul. You know, this is like the best pastor's <laughs> conference you can go to. And so we get to join in on this pa pastor's conference. And then this is beautiful. I mean, the things that Paul shares are just incredible. And so from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when he says elders, bishops, pastors, overseers, it, it's the same thing. He's talking for those people who are overseeing these areas of the church. And Ephesus would become probably the hub and most focused area of the church, even more so than Antioch or Jerusalem. Ephesus became kind of the central place where the church was the strongest and grew. And so Paul recognizes that God is doing a mighty work there. He calls all the leaders who are in this region, an area where he pastored for a period of time, and he calls them to himself. The elders in verse 18, it says, When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have no, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So Paul starts, and he starts with a reminder of his example. You know when I was with you, how I lived in this way, and how I served the Lord with humility and with tears. Paul uses himself as an example of how he was humble and served with tears how he served the Lord. It's important that we recognize what we do, we do unto the Lord. You know, if we serve men, we can get upset. But if we serve the Lord, it's not time wasted. I remember my father-in-law was attending a, a church and they had a building and he was an electrician, retired, and, and so they asked for some help and asked him to do some electrical work. And, you know, he was high up, union uh, electrician. He knew his stuff and he did things the right way. And so he put a lot of his life into this building. I mean, he spent months and months doing things the right way, running lights to the classrooms, to the sanctuary, setting up outlets, you know, panels, everything. He just 
did all this work, spent a lot of his life, blood and sweat and tears into this building. And then, through some lack of leadership, they lost the building. And I remember him telling me after they lost this building, you know, part of him was like, all my work. But he said, you know what? What I did, I did for God. So it, it doesn't matter. Because when I did that work, I did it for the Lord. I didn't do it for that church or that pastor. I did it for God. And we need to keep that in our minds, that what we do, you're not doing it for Sam. You're not doing it for Genesis. You do it for the Lord. Because then you don't lose the reward. Then you don't get shortchanged. You do it humbly for God, and Paul did it with tears. When I first went on staff over in Alhambra, Calvary Chapel of Alhambra, years ago, I got a little plaque, and it was Psalm 100, verse 2. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. And it's always been something that, you know, if you're going to do this, do it with gladness. Do it because you want to. Not because you have to. Do it because this is what you want to do. And remember who you're serving. You know, you guys, when you go in there, help out with the, the children and the nursery and the kids. Oh, I serve the Lord. <laughs> serve the Lord with gladness. You know, I'm doing this, God, for you. I'm not this, I don't have no stupid kids. What am I in here for, you know? I, I would not say that. <laughs> These aren't my kids and the whining brats. What's going on? No, I do this for God. I serve the Lord by watching these kids. And we have to remember that, that what we do is unto the Lord. He goes on and he says, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of God are all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own numbers, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning 
each of you night and day with tears. So Paul again is pleading to this group of leaders. And he's talking to them. He, he's giving them insight. There, there is so much here. He did not hesitate to do anything that was helpful, it says in verse 20. In other words, he gave of himself. Verse 21, I've declared both to Jews and Greeks and they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the message of what he was telling them. That, that is the, the truth that he declared that he did not hesitate to tell them. Their need to change their life and have faith in Jesus. That, that is the truth that we have to give. That is the substance of our belief. And he tells this to them. This is the important things that you need to remember. These are the things that you need to hold on to. And how he he knows that there's suffering coming to them. him. The Spirit tells him, there's hardships awaiting me. I don't know if I'm going to see you guys again. I probably won't see any of you ever again. We know in, in 2 Timothy and even in 1 Timothy, it seems that he did make another trip and go by Ephesus, but whether he was able to see all the pastors or not, we don't know. This was a unique gathering that he had with them. And then he tells them in verse 27, after he's not, he proclaimed the whole will of God to them, that whole will of God is the fact that we need to be saved by faith, the regeneration, sanctification by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, watch. What does he tell them to watch, though? Watch out for what? He says, keep watch over yourselves. Before you can watch over the flock of God, you need to keep watch over yourself. We're, we're so good at watching others. I can tell you what you need. I know what that person needs. Oh, if they would do this, if they would do this, if they'd live this way, if they'd live that way. But he tells them, watch over yourself. You see, the only one you really have control over is yourself. I tell, whenever I do marriage counseling, you're in charge of half of this relationship. You have control over 50% of this relationship. Guess which 50% it is. It's you. But boy, I'm telling you, every time you get into marriage counseling, that 50% knows what the other 50% knows needs to be doing. I could tell you how to fix this message or relationship. This marriage would be fixed if you would do this. Then it would be good. But watch over yourself. Fix what's going on in you. Don't worry about that other 50%. You worry about this 50%. And Paul talks to these pastors, these leaders, these elders and says, watch over yourself. Because if you don't watch over yourself, how can you watch over anyone else? And Paul's example was humble and with tears. What a great example that is. For anyone who is involved with leadership is to be humble and to love and to care. That's what we need to do. We need to have the same attitude as the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Peter says that we are to watch over the flock of God, not by constraint, but willingly. 
Not because we have to, but because we want to. And we do it because we love. This is the great model for what leadership is about. Humility in tears. When you counsel or talk to somebody about an issue that they're dealing with, say you know someone who has a drinking problem, or whatever problem it is, they have this issue. When you go to talk to them, do you talk to them in humility? Or do you blast them? What I've done and has helped me is whenever I'm talking to someone about an area of lack in their life, of area of um, fault, I go into that remembering my weakest times and points. So that if I talk to them, I don't talk to them as judging or condemning them, but I come from a place of, hey, I know what it's like to be weak in an area of humility. So if I'm going to talk to someone, I'm going to say, hey, man, what's, what's wrong with you? You need to knock it off, man. That's not right. You better just, and start pointing fingers and start condemning and start judging and being, but come up to them and say, hey, man, we, we need to get out of here. I know what it's like to be here. You got to do it with humility. And then I love it says with tears. And we say, see it twice in this passage, his discourse, he says, with tears. And what does that mean, with tears? It means I care. When you cry about something, it's because you care about it. You know, when you, you see something that really moves you and touches you, it, it brings tears to your eyes. I, I was watching an interview with, uh, don't laugh at me, with the American Idol contestant who lost last night, Danny Gokey. And one of the things he was sharing afterwards was, he says, I feel this relief because now I can talk about the things that are important with me and no one's going to say, oh, you're just doing it because you want to win. Because 10 months ago, he was at the bed of his wife who died. And he says, you know, I'm doing what, I, at that point, she said, I want you to do this. And I couldn't tell people, well, I'm doing this for her and I'm doing this because of her because then they're going to think of it in the wrong way. And he was just moved with emotion, and it moved me too, you know, as he was able to start opening up. And the idea of with tears is means with something that is close to your heart, with something that really matters to me. And Paul is telling them, I talked to you guys about this, I warned you about this, about people who are going to come and try and take over, deceive people, use people for their own gain. I warned you about it, I warned you about it with tears because it's important. And, and that needs to be our attitude. One of the things I want you guys to recognize that this group of leaders and elders, it's not exclusive. And does, it doesn't, I mean, there was no seminary that they went to that made them pastors and elders. They found out about Jesus and they were led by the Spirit of God to these roles of leadership. And that's what's available to all of us here areas of leadership and anyone you're over whether it's your own kids or whether it's over a ministry children's ministry ushers music whatever it is if there are people under you, you you've got to serve them with 
humility and with tears and you have to care because it's not about the things that you do it's about the people who cares about the things if it's not connected to people and here what Paul is telling this group of elders this group of pastors is you need to care just like I cared you need to care for these people. You need to watch over yourselves, and then you need to watch over God's flock. Shepherd the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Be, he's made you overseers, not overbearers. And there's a big difference. Overseeing is helping someone. Overbearing is moving and making someone do something. There's a big difference. Do we oversee people and give them guidance or are we overbearing them? What is it? Because it's one thing for a shepherd to lead sheep. He walks in front of them and they follow him. And it's another thing to drive cattle and make them go where you want them to go. And you see the idea of a shepherd is you're leading them, you're overseeing them, but they freely follow you. You don't make them do something. And that's so important. That's so important to me. I don't want anyone to be forced to serve. Because man, then it gets old really quick. But if you want to, boy, that want to makes all the difference in the world. And the Holy Spirit has placed you in that place. When God moves upon your heart to want to do something, now you've got something. Now we're cooking. Now we've got an ingredient. Now we've got a combination that really works. We've got the Spirit moving on your heart and putting the desire in you. And now, boy, I don't want to hold you back. I'll oversee and then let you go. Hey, you want to do that? Wow, go for it. There they go. Wow, look at them. But if, as soon as I start putting my hands on it and start overbearing it, then I limit what God is doing. And I muddy it up and I contaminate it. And so we need to make sure that we don't do that. We can't be overbearing. We do it humility. We watch over ourselves, oversee the flock of God that he purchased with his blood. Remember, it's his flock. It's not ours. And I just wrote to someone who, who is uh, going to be ordained to be a pastor. And I, I shared a little note with him. You know, the idea of pastor or shepherd is really the same thing as that of Christian. Christian bears the name of Christ. Well, shepherd bears the image of Jesus, the good shepherd. It's not a title that is given in other words, it's not something that we call people. You're my, you know, this is Pastor Paul, this is whatever. Jesus is the good shepherd and people represent him in ministry. His spirit moves on these people to take that role of who? Of Jesus. And so just like Christian bears the name of Christ, shepherd represents the person of Jesus. And that's important to think of it in that way, that you now represent the good shepherd. Do it willingly. Do it with love and humility.
Okay, let's see if we can finish this up here. Now I commit you to God. What a beautiful, what beautiful words those are. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not covered, coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord himself. Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. A touching and moving thing. And as Paul concludes his example, you guys know, I didn't come here to get from you. I came here to give. Do people know that of us? Are we here to get or are we here to give? Because it's a big difference. If I'm here for people to give to me or to serve me instead of me serve them, then I'm not a pastor. I don't represent the good shepherd. I am not living in that image. What did Jesus say when he gathered the disciples and he, he girded himself with a towel and he washed their feet, took on that form of a servant and he says, you call me Lord, and that's true, I am. If I, being your Lord, wash your feet, what should you do? You should, I should be a servant too. And, and that's Paul's picture. He said, I didn't come here to get money from you. I didn't come here to get gold or prestige. I didn't come here so that you guys could, you know, magnify me and... and you know, make me someone important. I came here and gave of myself to you because Jesus, who the good <laughs> shepherd said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I took the shepherd's words and applied them to my life and demonstrated to you what that means. And what's great about this is the people just, when Paul left, they cried because they loved this man. Why did they love him so much? Because he loved them. That's what it's about. When someone loves you and someone really cares for you and that person leaves, then it hurts because someone who cares for me has left. Funerals are like that. When, when someone who's walked with the Lord and loves the Lord and, and loves their family or whatever, when they, they die, who do we cry for? Ourselves. Why? Because someone who cared for me, someone who, who loved me, someone who I had this love for is now gone. Oh, they're with the Lord. But what, what hurts is that someone who cared for me is now gone out of my life. And that leaves a spot that hurts. And that's what was happening here as Paul left Someone who cared for them was leaving and it hurt them. Because Paul, you were a great example to us with tears 
You wept over us with humility. You served us. You provided even for us. You worked and gave to us. You were an example of the shepherd when he left. They cried because they wouldn't see him again. And they walked him to his ship. What a beautiful example of a pastor. What a beautiful example of a, a man who served God. And I can't think of better words that would be shared with anyone who's in a position of leadership. We see these echoed to Timothy when he talks about running the good race. We see these echoed in Peter's Gospels about what it is to be serving the uh, to be a shepherd who serves, not because you have to, because you want to, not doing it for money. What's shared here is foundational for what it means to be a leader who cares about the things of God and, and that should be something that's a part of us as well anyway well let's pray Lord I pray that we would remember you as our example you are the good shepherd Father we are to live our lives and mirror you and only you Father man falls short so many ways and so many areas and God the best thing I can do is point people to you and try and be an example of who you are and I pray we would all have that attitude Lord that we would all sense this call to to serve you in this way of representation Lord I pray that you would help us to remember these things to live lives of humility and li lives that care, lives that love. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy that endures forever. May we be like-minded. Lord, may we be gentle and easy to be entreated. May we show just that gentleness, Lord, that you've shown towards us. I thank you, God, and I ask your blessing on everyone here again in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a neat scripture I, was, I didn't read. First Thessalonians, it says, But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. That was Paul's exhortation to those in Thessalonica, that he was gentle, like a mother caring for his children. Think of, when you think of Jesus, and you think of a shepherd, you think of a, a person who's in leadership, that's his picture. Gentle, like a mother. And I think that's an important picture to have if we're going to take roles of leadership. It doesn't mean you can't be strong. Anyone who's had a mom knows moms can be strong. Moms can put the hammer down like nobody. But it also means that gentleness and, and caring. And so let's keep that example in mind. God bless you guys.